Hello and welcome to our discussion of tax policy in the real world in conversation with three former chancellors of the Exchequer. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director of the Institute. We're going to talk about their experiences of setting taxes, the problems they faced and how they made progress. This is an area the IFG has done a lot of work on. Taxing times, the need to reform the UK tax system we put out in July 2018. It was a long time ago now. And that was arguing that there was a strong case, regardless of political objectives, for reforming the UK's untidy tax system. And then we put out a report in uh, April last year on overcoming the barriers to tax reform, talking about the obstacles to why uh, to chancellors in trying to do what they wanted, uh, including the many vocal losers from any of those changes. So we're delighted to be bringing these people together, delighted to be doing this in partnership with Deloitte. Our panel is Norman Lamont, who was Chancellor from 1990 to 1993 in John Major's government, including before and after the Conservatives' unexpected election win in 1992, and he had to contend with the recession of the early 1990s. We have as well Alistair Darling, who was Chancellor from 2007 to 2010 in Gordon Brown's government, and of course that dominated by the financial crisis. And we've also have with us uh, George Osborne, his successor from 2010 to 2016, dealing with the aftermath of the crisis, first with the coalition government and then after 2015 with the Conservative majority government. Before we plunge in, a few housekeeping questions. Please do send in your questions. We have a lot of people watching. And I think there's going to be a lot of questions, so do start sending them now. You can put them into the Q&A panel on the right of your screen. Please do add your name and where you're speaking from. It really is good to know. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Chancellor. Please follow and tweet along. We'll have a video and sound recording of this up on our website within 24 hours. And with that, let me just hand over briefly to Matt Ellis, Managing Partner for Tax and Legal at Deloitte UK, who's going to say a few remarks about this event as well. Matt, hi. Thank you, Bronwyn. Uh, we're delighted to be able to co-host this event today. Uh, Deloitte is, is best known, I guess, to many of you as a, a tax advisory firm. We advise business and individuals on all types of taxation in every geography that our clients choose to operate in. But we are also massively invested in understanding and contributing to the development of tax policy. In particular, this past year, the experience of COVID-19 has brought a rapid change in the structure of domestic and global, uh, uh, the global economy and the balance between tax and spend. Uh, greater attention is being uh, now given, not just uh, the huge increases in public spending, uh, but the, the way the future of work is changing and the shifting locus of the global economy, uh, as well as big commitments that are being made to achieve net zero. Uh, and now more than ever, creative policy making will be required to accommodate these trends whilst delivering the greater tax receipts needed, not just through levels of taxation, we think, but by undertaking structural reforms uh, to the tax system. All too often, our clients and businesses haven't had the time to properly uh, consider the medium or long term trends in policy making, uh, but the tax systems to which they need to adhere remains the government's primary economic lever. Uh, and we're now seeing a marked increase in engagement from our clients on tax policy matters, uh, perhaps evidenced by the high level of attendance for today's session. Uh, and there's probably nobody more qualified to guide us through these topics than the distinguished panel uh, that we are fortunate enough to have today, all of whom have at different periods in our history been responsible for UK tax policy making. Uh, and so we're looking forward to hearing some fantastic reflections on their experiences today. Uh, and I'll hand back to you, Bronwyn, to start the session. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Um, George Osborne, uh, perhaps we can start with you. And you spent six years as Chancellor. You took over in the aftermath of the financial crisis. How did you go about it? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Bronwyn, thanks for having me uh, with my uh, former colleagues and, and friends, Alistair and Norman. Uh, thanks to Deloitte uh, as well. Um, well, I mean, the first thing about tax is it's there to raise revenue. Um, and I had to raise revenue, uh, as indeed did Norman 
back in the early 90s because we were in the aftermath of the crisis, different from being in the middle of the crisis as Alistair was and Rishi Sunak is today. So the first thing is you have to raise revenue and uh, that is hard to do because people don't like paying tax. Uh, I increased VAT because it was the, in my view anyway, the simplest and most efficient way to raise a large sum of money. Uh, second, I, I use tax to kind of drive an approach to economic reform and to essentially try and stimulate economic growth, most notably in corporation tax, uh, where I made a number of simplifications, reduced the rate. I think I there had the advantage of having had five years as a shadow chancellor to think about it all. You know, most chancellors, um, including the two on this panel, uh, you know, were thrust into the job in the middle of the government, whereas I had the luxury, if you like, of thinking about that in, in opposition. And then the third thing I use tax for is to achieve other government objectives, other social objectives. So a tax on sugar, a tax on plastic bags being two things I introduced to reduce plastic bag use and, and stop uh, companies putting sugar in their fizzy drinks. And, and they were they were broader social objectives. And then, so, so I, you're trying to achieve quite a few things with tax. It, I would just like end with this sort of cautionary note, which is we live in a very mature uh, democracy tax has been around for a very, very long period of time. And the taxes like income tax have been around for a couple of hundred years. And I think, you know, and I would, I would say that maybe I shared some of this naivety as in opposition. You think you can just change this system and come up with a brilliant blueprint. But the truth is uh, that there's a reason for the complexity. Often there are very entrenched uh, pressure groups, understandably concerned citizens, uh, and, and there's not much of a constituency for just simplification per se. And so I think sometimes uh, there's a sort of disconnect between, you know, what the actual job of the chancellor is and what people think a chancellor can do um, with a blank sheet of paper, because we don't, none of us started with a blank sheet of paper and none of, none of us left a blank sheet of paper to ourselves to our successors. So I think this is a great event because you're, you're actually talking to people who've had to deal with the reality of making tax policy in a mature and complex modern democracy. Thank you. We, we have said it's in the real world. I'll just ask you quickly, was there a big difference between doing that within the coalition and when uh, your government had a majority? Well, the biggest difference um, that I had, the, the biggest difference within, in a coalition uh, the, the argument happened inside the um, coalition, in, inside what we called the quad at the time. In other words, if I could persuade uh, the Liberal Democrats, Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander, my extremely capable chief secretary, throughout almost all the time I was chancellor, then we had the majority in the House of Commons. So it was not really a problem in that. The debate happened inside the government. Um, and I never had the luxury of being a chancellor with a big conservative majority, but I did have a small conservative majority in the last period I was chancellor. And there the debate happened in parliament, really, because the small majority drove uh, the reality that, you know, just a few number of government MPs weren't happy. You couldn't get your budget through. I think I think that sort of central point, which is the deliberate, the political deliverability of what you want to do is absolutely central. Um, and, you know, um, without sort of, you know, you know, both Norman and I, mm. there were things we did on VAT, which well, we both increased the rate of VAT. But when we tried to broaden the base of VAT, which, by the way, every single think tank will say that's a very sensible thing to do. And, you know, a bit of simplification and make this system, you know, and I tried to do it on hot food so that, you know, pasties for text the same way as fish and chips. But sure enough, you know, which everyone thought was sort of sensible in theory, get to it in practice in the House of Commons and like, you know, bang goes your majority. So yeah. the kind of, it's, we are, Chancellor's Exchequer in Britain are not technocrats like finance ministers in some other countries. You know, we're very active political players and, uh, and of course, members of the House of Commons ourselves. And, and the deliverability of tax change yeah. is absolutely central. Well, thank you very much for that. And we, we will come on to, I, I think, pretty well all, all of those points. Alistair Darling, maybe I can turn to you next. And you were, you had the challenge of supporting the economy through the, the, the global financial crisis. And when we were doing these tax uh, projects um, 
that I referred to before, uh, one of the things you, well, a couple of the things you said to us was the only popular tax in this country is the tax that someone else pays and getting the politics right is the most important thing. What if you can take us into your approach as you were doing that? Well, since you, since you mentioned it, let me just maybe briefly comment on the point I was making about uh, the popular taxes being the one that someone else pays. Um, you know, I give you a, a, an example of that. Uh, I introduced in 2008 a temporary banker's bonus tax um, because at that time banks were still taking extraordinary sums by way of bonuses and it seemed to me that those of the broadest shoulders should uh, bear the greatest uh, burden. Uh, it was a popular tax, unless you're a banker, of course, uh, because um, it was being, you know, it's, it's someone else is paying it and in the eyes, I suppose, of the public, um, people who ought to be paying more tax. Uh, so, you know, and, you know, George just alluded to what happens when you try and extend um, VAT to, uh, you know, passes or whatever. Um, and another category of areas which are now rapidly becoming no-go uh, is fuel tax. You know, we all talk about the need to be more green and the need to cut down our carbon emissions. And yet, despite the fact that oil prices have fallen quite dramatically over the last six or seven years, uh, I don't think any chancellor is ever going to be, put, be able to put up um, uh, fuel, fuel duty. I mention that because, as George said at the start, the, the, the reason you tax is to raise revenue to pay for services and the rest of it. Uh, and if you your tax base, base narrows, as it has done, you know, I mentioned fuel tax, inheritance tax is another area, uh, you know, which is very political content, politically contentious, despite the fact that actually very few people actually pay it. So just, you know, I, I just thought I'd just make those general points. Um, in relation to your specific question, uh, Bronwyn, um, my position as Chancellor for the, the, the majority of the time that I was in office was similar to Rishi Sunak today, and that is that I was trying to stop the economy from collapsing and stopping what was undoubtedly becoming a recession, becoming depression. And you know, in doing that, I was doing what finance ministries were doing across much of um, uh, the, many of the developed economies. So what I was doing was actually looking to put money into the economy rather than take it out. You know, for example, I cut VAT on a temporary basis to bring forward uh, spending. You know, I increased the pension. I brought forward the child benefit introduced measures like time to pay for tax and so on. So I wasn't looking to raise taxes, although clearly and I always made it clear that, uh, you know, that once once we had got the economy going again, if you like, uh, then a the time would come, as is the case today, when taxes would have to rise uh, in order to bring down bring down the deficit. Now, clearly, the order of magnitude of sums is much, much greater today for very obvious and understandable reasons. Uh, but essentially, what I was doing was the opposite to finding myself in the situation that George and I think Norman did of at times having to raise money. Uh, and you know, I think the only other point that, that that I would make is, you know, a general point which we'll maybe come back to, and that is, you shouldn't forget that if you're looking to raise money, the two big uh, uh, sources of revenue are income tax and national insurance and VAT. You know, there aren't actually a whole lot of other places that you can go to. You can fiddle around with the system yeah, and you can do a bit of this and a bit of that, but it doesn't raise that much. And the other thing, which I think both George and Norman would go along with, when people uh, think about the complexity of, our, complexity of our tax system and they think about all the things that we might do, the vast majority of the complexity comes from anti-avoidance measures. Because every time you do something, some clever person comes up a way of avoiding paying it. Therefore, the HMRC comes up with a way to stop them doing that. And that's why, you know, if you look at the, 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 ta the, the tax uh, code and you look at the revenue, a bit like the benefit system, why is it complicated? Well, because a series of fixes are put in just about every year to try and stop leakage. So, you know, it, it's a complex business and I'm not asking you to feel sorry for us. It's just a fact and the fact that you have to deal with it. And, and as finally, as everybody would agree, um, you know, even when you come up with a great idea, if you've got one loser, you will hear from that loser night and day. Uh, you will not hear from anyone who gains from it. Thank you very much indeed um, for that and indeed for your, your comments to our work. Norman Lamont, I'd love your views on that, but also uh, you take us back to um, the years when you're setting budgets, and in particular to the 1992 and 1993, 
and the budget you had after the 92 election, the 93 budget, when you raised, uh, it was, I think it still stands out as the largest net tax increase as a share of GDP that any budget, um, it was at least uh, then since 1979, um, now rivaled by Rishi Sunak's. Perhaps you could um, just take us into how you um, went about that. Well, the situation in 1993 uh, was really rather similar, but obviously not quite as bad. Well, not as bad as the situation that Rishi Sunak faces today. We had a, what at the time appeared to be a very large deficit. It was 7% of GDP. I think that was all of 50 billion pounds, but it was alarming and it was forecast uh, that it might go higher. So uh, the dilemma I had was exactly the same as Rishi Sunak. It was how do I give confidence that we're going to get to grips with the deficit without at the same time choking off the recovery, which was just uh, beginning. And so what I did was very similar to what Rishi Sunak has done. I announced tax increases for three years, three and four years ahead. In fact, I did more than just announce them. I legislated for them so that when poor Kenneth Clark succeeded me as chancellor, his freedom of action was actually rather restricted because I'd already laid down in law what the tax increases were going to be. Um, well, what one of the things I did was, as you said, or was referred to earlier, was to impose tax on fuel and power, VAT on fuel and power. And uh, just as Alistair and George had said, I considered various extensions to VAT. And the reason, among others, that I alighted on fuel, domestic fuel and power was that I favoured doing it on one tax at 15% rather than extending it to children's clothing, food, newspapers. That would have been a wonderful row, wouldn't it, newspapers? So, and I decided to do it in two stages, seven and a half and 15%. And guess what happened? The 15% was knocked out by the House of Commons after I'd left the, the scene, just illustrating what has been said earlier. So, um, you know, all that was meant to be green taxes and not trying to make a political point, but both the Labour and Liberal parties were committed to putting VAT on fuel and power. But when the moment came, they weren't uh, to be seen. Um, and so that was how, how that uh, happened. Um, as regards to the sort of general point, how do I approach tax reform? I mean, George said he had the uh, privileged luxury of being in opposition, having more time to think about it than those of us who were suddenly thrust into it. Well, actually, I had some time to think about it because I was in the Treasury under Nigel Lawson and worked with Nigel Lawson on tax reform. And the, the principles I tried to follow may not look like it, but that I tried to follow were very much the same as Nigel's, very much illustrated by the famous cliche from Colbert about getting the maximum out of the goose with the minimum amount of hissing. So, you know, taxes need to be uh, simple, need to be easy to collect, better to uh, tax consumption rather than income, concentrate on marginal rates. If you get taxes down, phase out uh, allowances as well. I mean, one of the things I did was to start the process of moving mortgage relief first from higher rate payers, then I got it down to 20%. Uh, and always look at the distributional consequences of what you're doing as well. But, you know, I do agree with what is Alistair said about other people's taxes being popular. As someone said, if democracy consists of robbing Peter to pay Paul, Paul will always vote for that. Thank you very, very much indeed for that. So perhaps um, you, you and the others can take um, us into one question, which we have explored quite a bit at the IFG, and that is why some even very small tax reforms make um, provoke a lot of opposition and what you can do about that as, as Chancellor. Well, I think as uh, was it Alistair said, uh, or was it George said, if there's one person who's affected by it, they will be onto it and making a lot of uh, noise. I think in the Conservative Party on the back benches, you have a lot of problem in getting any tax increases through. There's a very sort of simplified version of the Laffer curve has taken root in the Conservative Party. And there seems to be the view that as long as you keep cutting taxes, the revenue will go up. Well, of course, this is complete nonsense. And, you know, I have a lot of regard for Art Laffer and have uh, discussed 
always with him. As you know, it depends on what is the optimal revenue raising of tax, whether a cut in tax will, will generate more revenue or, or not. But you have difficulties in the Commons illustrated by what happened with my attempt to get uh, VAT on fuel and, 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 and power. Also, I think you, know, you have the newspapers will alight on the, the slightest thing, and it's things that touch people's ordinary lives. I mean, even in a budget that's uncontroversial, you know, the headlines may be all about the tax on cigarettes, the tax on beer, the tax on whiskey, and so on. It's the easily visible things. George, do you want to comment on that? You had, um, I mean, famously, I think it was in uh, 2012, um, the big uproar about the tax on on pasties and on static caravans and so on, but also uh, at least it's interesting to us what uh, what you do about it. Well, I think, I mean, there's an interesting, I, I, I take um, two taxes. So the first on, on VAT, so static caravans and, um, you know, hot food and whatever. They were attempts to sort of simplify the VAT system and raise a little bit of revenue. The most controversial thing in that budget was cutting the top rate of income tax from 50p to 45p. And it all took place against a backdrop in which people thought the country was in recession, although subsequently the ONS, thank you very much, <laughs> revised the numbers, but never gave me back that year of, of my political life. Uh, and so, you know, the truth is it wasn't a very conducive, you know, people weren't, you know, it wasn't a great atmosphere in which to be making tax changes. And, and I suffered reversals on those things, even though they didn't actually raise very much money. I think the kind of interesting contrast from my mind is but in, uh, several years later in 2015 and 16, I introduced a sugar tax. And I remember all the kind of uh, you know, advisors and everything quite rightly saying, George, you're absolutely mad. You're, you know, you're, you're about to introduce a tax on Coca-Cola, right? I mean, that is going to go down like a lead balloon. And um, and you know, and I announced it. And it's one of the things I'm proudest of doing, actually. And it got enormous support. Um, and I, I was trying to think, what's the difference? You know, first of all, it was better economic times, so the backdrop was easier. My own political standing was higher. Uh, so you know, I come back to the point: chances are political creatures. But second, a huge amount of ground laying had been done for a sugar tax. I mean, there there have been a lot of talk about introducing a sugar tax. There were lots of third parties who were in favour of it. Uh, and, and so it was always going to be a fight and I was ready for the fight. I geared up for a fight, but actually never materialised on the day. I was ready for a really big fight and it never happened. On the VAT thing, I think the earlier, you know, I sort of thought I could get away with a simplification argument, but I couldn't. And uh, the people who were affected, you know, came out of the woodwork and, and complained. Um, and so, you know, I think it's there you can raise taxes. You know, Norman and I have raised taxes. Rishi Sunak's just announced a massive tax raising budget. Which has been very popular. Apparently. You can raise taxes, but you need to have explained why you're doing it. You either need to make the rationale around sound public finances or in a particular space, explain why this policy change is necessary. So more preparation, more ground laying, better. And an explanation to people, the narrative, as people say, of why you're doing it, why this is going to make. Doesn't mean, by the way, they'll buy it, yeah. right? You might, you might try and explain why. I mean, fuel duty, you know, both uh, Alistair and I were in a similar situation, but we just simply could not raise fuel duty. I mean, it's an interesting question on motoring taxes. You know, cars are becoming more electric. They're zero rated. You can't raise fuel duty and indeed fuel will be phased out. And that's a mass, you know, and then at the same time, people can say that the nurses should be paid more. <laughs> well, where are you going to get the money from? And, and replacing motoring taxes is going to be a huge challenge for a chancellor, either this one or the next one. And, I, you know, I would start making the argument now, explaining to people why it is that they're going to have to find a new source of revenue. And, and you know, I think the longer, in that case, when you can see the problem coming at you, the longer the run-in, the, the runway to dealing with it, the better. Mm. Alistair, darling, can I, can I bring you in? I mean, it, I remember a campaign to buy you from every pub in the UK when your 2008 budget raised alcohol duty. And wondering whether some taxes are just too unpopular to raise or whether there are indeed ways of, of explaining this to people. Well, let me give you an example of where um, we introduced a tax that was 
Gordon Brown, uh, not me, uh, but I was involved in the discussions. And that's in relation to raising tax to spend more money on the health service. Remember at the turn of the century, there was a lot of debate about how much we as a country spent on the health service as opposed to, I think the comparison was principally with our continental neighbours. And uh, Gordon Brown knew that that was going to be controversial, so he appointed a commission um, you know, to look into the funding of the NHS, which recommended that national insurance uh, should go up to pay for it. And, you know, looking back, it was a commission that clearly was like a train that was on a set of rails and it was pretty clear which station it was going to arrive at. Uh, but, you know, by paving the way um, over about an 18 month period, um, it was um, it was it was politically acceptable. And I think both major political parties and probably the Liberals as well, but for that matter, are nervous about raising taxes because, you know, the pitfalls are, are absolutely immense. But you know, George and I, Norman, we've been talking about fuel tax. Let me give you an example. That's a very good example, actually, of, you know, where things are going to have to change, uh, not just because, you know, of um, the, um, uh, you know, the need to raise revenue, but simply because of technological change. Uh, it is likely that within in the next 10 years or so, more and more cars will be electric. It is also quite possible that we will see a growth of what's called autonomous vehicles, you know, ones that can, and certainly in, in certain cities, will be able to run around. So you simply, you, you, you buy them, you, you buy the services like hiring a taxi. Uh, and that, you know, that will mean that your revenue from fuel duty will fall uh, simply because people are using less um, less uh, petrol than they were in the past. Uh, about 10 years ago now, well, actually it's near 15 years ago now, I floated the idea of uh, ch changing the way in which you raise money for road use uh, to what's called road pricing, where basically you're charged according to the distance you travel, the time of day you travel and so on. Now, naturally, when I introduced it, it was greeted with a wall of opposition uh, from, you know, just about every quarter. And I think one of my predecessors had to sort of, um, if I use the pun, park it somewhat, um, where it's remained ever since. But at some stage, we're going to have to change the way in which we raise money for the use of roads. Uh, I think road pricing is an idea which will come, you know, at, uh, at some stage. I always used to say at least 10 years off, and it probably still is. Uh, but it's an example of where, you know, governments in the future are going to have to say to people look we'll need roads you need to get about it's got to be paid for but you know you and you know road pricing is certainly one way of doing it but i think you know when you make big structural changes in tax it does take an awful lot of rolling the ground before you start it and in the meantime of course you're hit by events uh, because you're always going to have to raise money to pay for this or that. And remember the big driver, actually, of your tax revenue isn't so much your tax rates or the taxes you have, but the state of the economy. You know, when the economy is growing, your tax rate revenues go up. And, you know, this is the problem that uh, Rishi Sunak faces today, today. He doesn't yet know what our economy is going to look like over the next five years, because nobody really knows, you know, how, how soon we will get a recovery, whether you'll get a recurrence or something else will come along. Um, so you, you never get to, you don't, it's not like you ever have a time where it's completely calm waters and you can make, you just say, well, let's reform this tax and let's reform the next one. You're never doing it in a vacuum. Something is always happening. Uh, and usually something is, you know, is, is, is very, it's very easy to derail what you're, you might be trying to do. Mm. Oh, no, entirely agreed. What about the point that Norman Lamont was raising about whether, um, there are circumstances in which cutting taxes raises revenue and and indeed you know, what role the Laffer curve has these days. Uh, George Osborne, you made cutting corporation tax, although increasing the, 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 the base in which it was taken, one of the um, centre points of what you were doing. And we've just had the Chancellor do something, do, do the opposite. What, um, what do you think recent history tells us about this? Well, I, there are two, I'd sort of point to two examples. I think, um, Cutting the top rate tax from 50 pence to 45 pence. I think most of the evidence, and it's you know it's always a bit difficult to disaggregate it from the general growth of the economy and increase in revenues. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that that did not cost a great deal of money. You know, the, the 50p rate was too high, and indeed, you know, that getting into old political arguments was only introduced in the last month of a 13-year Labour government. Um, so it that 
that was an example where I think there was some Laffer effect. In other words, you could cut from 50p to 45p and it didn't cost you as much money as a sort of more uh, static scoring of it would. On corporate tax, I mean, the situation I faced was uh, the corporate tax regime, in my judgment, had become uncompetitive. Quite a few companies were relocating abroad. And with the help, I want to you know, praise my uh, minister by my side through most of these years, David Gork, who was a brilliant junior minister. We came up with a corporate tax roadmap that set a kind of falling rate of corporation tax, broadening of the base, as you say, getting rid of the complexity of the small companies rate, changing the control foreign companies rules, and basically constantly you know, explaining what we were going to do over a period of years so that large corporations and businesses who plan on a multi-year timetable wouldn't have to wake up and see what the next budget had installed for them. And I think that did have a big effect in, in, in both uh, signaling to the world that Britain was pro-business and you know, recovering from the financial crash, um, but also it, it, it did increase the revenues coming into the exchequer power percent per percent of uh, tax rate. So even if the overall rate amount of money raised was less, you were raising more per percentage of income, corporation tax you were levying. Um, and the truth is, you know, and again, this was a point Alistair uh, made, for a chancellor, the corporation tax is not, you really want to go for the big revenue raising. It's your VATs, your national insurance, and your income tax. So, look, we will, you know, and I, I don't want to criticise Richard Sunak because I think he's doing a pretty good job in difficult circumstances. But I would say the idea you can increase Britain's business tax by 25, by 25% and there will be no consequence, mm. I think, and I don't think he would claim that either, is a mistake. The taxes have consequences and, uh, and, and we will, you know, wait to see if this tax increase does indeed go ahead, um, what impact it will have. I'll just note that Tom Newton Dunn is. I'm going to come to questions in a minute, but Tom Newton Dunn has asked a, a question, which is in fact that of, of who's who's right, you you or Rishi Sunak, and um, uh, and uh, your your answer is well. I mean, I, I, I you know I, I, I the one thing I don't want to do is I had a very good I had actually a very good relationship with Alistair, even though you know I was his opposite, I was a shadow for years um and uh, and i used to turn to norman for advice when i was chancellor and i and i certainly don't want to rain on anyone's parade he's doing a difficult job in number 11 at the moment so i you know I'm, i i support rishi sunak and what he's trying to do um you know ultimately when i was faced with a similar choice of how to raise money i preferred the vat lever than the corporate tax lever because i I wanted to send a signal that Britain was a pro-business place, and and I think you've got to be careful as a country, um, you know, what signals you're sending around the world to a world that certainly doesn't have any much time to look into the UK tax code. And if your basic message, this was true, I feel a fear of the 50% tax rate for on income tax. If it's true of very high corporation tax rate, if we ever end up there, you know, you're just sending a message around the world to. That's, you know, Britain's not a particularly enterprising or pro-business place at a very moment when you want to be encouraging that in a recovery. Thanks for that. Let me just take you all three of you uh, before we go to questions into uh, the present and the, and the future. We have, um, as you've been describing, need to raise revenues. People want public services. Um, this is even before coronavirus. They want they want uh, public services probably improving. And the projections of money that were going to be needed to pay for that were um, steep even before coronavirus descended and before the, potentially the demands of, the, of getting to net zero. How would you encourage any chancellor, this one and the future ones, to think about the amounts of money that need to be raised? Who'd like to start? Well, I'm happy to have a go at it. It's important to remember that you have taxes for a purpose. You know, they're not they're not some sort of abstract thing, and largely they are to pay for public services. And it you know and you know both George and Norman have emphasised the fact that politics matters here. I think we are at a stage in the political cycle where people's awareness of the fact that the resilience we have in public services is now getting dangerously low. 
Um, and the health service over the last 12 months has performed you know, in a tremendous way. But we know that you know, there's not much resilience. Running an NHS on a just-in-time basis where you don't have anything to fall back on is fraught with difficulties. And you know, whilst you know, we're making strides with the vaccines, we're by no means out of the woods yet. We simply don't know what's going to happen. Equally, if you look at local authority funding, and you know, take one example of what local authorities spend their money on, care homes, well, we we know what's happened over the last 12 months. Again, you know, there's a, the, the, we have a real resilience problem. And similarly with policing, and, you know, the whole question of education and catching up from the last 12 months, you know, that will require not just human effort, obviously, but it will re require to be backed by spending. So I think in you know, the next few years, uh, the idea that any chancellor could be looking at, well, what can I reduce, give away in taxes and so on. By the way, I, I thought the Laffer curve had been well and truly parked and consigned to where it belongs um, some years ago. Uh, but, you know, the, the, you know, the government will have to raise money, not just to meet our day-to-day -day running costs, but also to begin the task. And let me say that this will take decades of you know reducing the accumulated debt that we have. I mean, I regard that as being rather like the the problem that faces post-war uh, governments and so on. Uh, so you know, I, I think um, uh, you know, I think we, we will have to raise money. Uh, whether you know, you you're talking about the corporation tax uh, there, my view of that is that what internationally people you know companies will live with a tax rate. They just want to know what it is, and as long as it's broadly comparable, you know, I I think you know that's what matters. What matters more to companies invest in Britain is, as George said, but I think meaning something different, the signals it sends. And dare I mention it, <clears throat> I'm not altogether sure what's happening with Brexit at the moment is sending great signals to people who might want to come and do business here and who think, how do I trade with uh, our large trading um, partner just across the, across the channel? You know, I'm also you know, sceptical about, you know, this Freeport business. I seem to remember we had Freeports until relatively recently when we were in the European Union. And what they tended to do was to take uh, companies from roundabout and squash them into the free port to take, get advantage of all the tax benefits and so on. There's an example of complexity where I have severe doubts as whether or not it's going to achieve very much, and it's certainly going to add to complexity. Um, you know, I would rather concentrate and see what we can do and what makes this country a good place to do business in, a good place to live, which actually matters to international businesses that like coming to this country or have at least up until now. So there's all sorts of things entering the, into the equation. And I'm afraid, you know, even for um, you know, people who, who look at the tax from an academic point of view, politics is never far away from any of these things. Can I just say something on social care? Because I think it's such a good point that Alice has raised. Everyone go sort of rings their hands and says like no government has solved social care and then they criticize Richard Sunak for not talking about it more in the budget there is a very it's very very simple if you want to spend more money on social care someone's got to pay for it and you either get the people who've got the money usually locked up in a house that they live in and they want to pass on to their children to pay for it or you get the rest of the public to pay for it in a general increase in taxation, including paying for the social care of people who are not going to sell their house and pass their house on to their children, even though the person paying the tax for their social care may not have a house themselves. That is the simple dilemma. And you can have as many debates and call for cross-party alliances as you want. You can wring your hands about the social care problem, but until a government says, we're gonna increase national insurance to pay for a big increase in provision of social care, or, we're going to take your house away from you because now you've gone into care and you can't pass it on to your child because it's going to be used to pay your care costs. Until a government says one of those two things, it will go on having a debate about social care. And the reason why the governments that the three of us were part of didn't make those choices is because they're incredibly unpopular. <laughs> and so it's, it's, you, it's much more straightforward politically, sadly, to just keep kicking the can down the road and saying, uh, well, there's a social care problem and in my budget this year, I'm announcing a few hundred million more for the social care budget. It's, it's a very good example. I, I, I would not disagree with you on the argument, but it, it arguably cost Theresa May her majority on, in that manifesto. Norman Lamont, um, what would you say, looking at the, uh, the future and the need, the apparent need to raise um, quite a lot of revenue to pay for the public services that people want. How 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 does any chancellor go about thinking about? Well, I I, I I rather agree with what Alice has said. I think the long term debt. Obviously, we're lucky that we may be living through a period, a long period of low interest rates. I mean, that's not certain, but it looks quite probable. 
a lot of it can be written over the, off over the longer term, but the current deficit, I think when you look at the, and I'm not wanting to criticize Mr. Sunak, obviously, but when you look at the arithmetic in the budget book, the way in which the current deficit falls so sharply in year two, year three, I think is uh, something one wonders quite how it's going to be done. And it looks as though there would have to be very tight squeeze on public expenditure. There's going to be a very demanding public expenditure round. I personally will be surprised if these tax increases are the last tax increases we see in order to deal with the problem of the current deficit and the short term that need, needs to uh, be dealt with. So, uh, you know, when you were saying my uh, tax increases were still the largest, mm -hmm. I think I won't have that distinction probably in a few years. I think it will come back. I think there will be more tax rises. I can't really see how that can be avoided. Thanks for I mean, that. Can I just say, I mean, also on, on corporation tax, I think for the reasons Alistair gave, he didn't have any alternative but to go to corporation tax because they'd ruled out VAT, they'd ruled out income tax, they'd ruled out national insurance. So he had to go to corporation tax. But corporation tax, I think, is almost a tax that's outliving its usefulness. And you know, I think there is an argument for possibly getting rid of corporation tax and just having a sales tax. But of course, we already have a sales tax called VAT, but uh, it's proving increasingly difficult to squeeze anything more out of that lemon. And goodness knows whether the revenue that has been predicted from the corporation tax rise will take place because the rise comes in just as the super incentive for investment ends. And whether the super incentive for investment really will bring forward new investment. I don't know. Some people are sceptical about that. Thanks for that. Let me go to questions. There are a lot of them and there are a lot of very good ones. We start with one from Louise. Um, is there good evidence that sin taxes on sugar and alcohol actually influence behaviour? You should jump in. Anyone who wants to answer any of these. The short answer is yes. Um, I've absolutely no doubt that um, the very high tax on cigarettes has played its part in reducing um, smoking in the country. And in my own experience, the, the plastic bag tax, which I have to say was, was a number 10 policy, not a number 11 policy. And I was a little bit skeptical of doing it, but I had a very good partnership with my prime minister at the time. And I uh, put it in my budget has had a dramatic impact on reducing plastic bag use. And the sugar tax, which I've already used, led almost immediately the, the soft drink companies to reformulate their, um, their, their, their fizzy drinks and take the sugar content down. So, you know, those those are sort of versions of syntaxes. They have actually worked uh, pretty well. Great. Let's go to another one, um, John Burt. Uh, what is the effective political limit, uh, specifically political limit, on both the upper and lower share of tax as a percentage of GDP? I think he wants numbers as an answer. Who'd uh, you'd like to pick that up? I, I, th I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, the, the paradox is, uh, you, you, you said earlier that I had put up taxes um, more than anyone else since Jeffrey. That, of course, is true. But for the reason that Alistair made earlier, the tax burden while I was chancellor was actually very low, measured as a percentage of GDP, because the economy was so uh, suppressed. And likewise, you know, at various points, the tax burden as a proportion of GDP, because you have to take account of the numerator as well as the denominator, goes up as the economy expands. And when people say the tax burden now is at the highest level since uh, Roy Jenkins was chancellor, part of that is because the economy has fallen 10%. But of course, tax revenues have also fallen. So it's very difficult to alter that number, whether it's, you know, we used to debate this, I used to debate this with John Major endlessly, what could you get the public sector down to as a proportion of GDP? And I think he thought you could get it down to something like 37% possibly, but not much further. You know, people talk about Singapore on Thames, but it's completely unrealistic if we're going to have the sort of welfare provision, the National Health Service that we've had and we want to to to, to, to build on. So, uh, you know, that that's where I would say the size of the public sector could be. The tax burden, I think, is very difficult to express as a percentage for the reasons I've given. 
I don't think you can. I don't think you can give a numerical answer to that. A lot of it depends on what's going on at the time. You know, as Norman said, the tax burden, uh, you know, has been it was a lot higher in the 1980s than it was when the Norman was a chancellor. Uh, uh, but it's it's what people perceive. Does it look fair? Uh, do they really feel squeezed? Um, uh, you know, I think that, that that's it, you know it's, it's a political judgment uh, really. Um, you know what, what you know last week um, Rishi Sunak announced that he was going to freeze personal allowances. Now the great thing about that announcement is it's not going to affect anybody this year. Uh, but I wonder how people will feel you know three or four years down the track, especially if the economy is turned down or people are losing their jobs and, and so on. Uh, you know, then you know that's that's sometimes a different um, a different uh, uh, way of looking at things. Equally, when I mean, George mentioned um, you know the alcohol duty and so on, a lot of the alcohol duties have been increased by just about every chancellor. You know, you mentioned that I was banned from visiting pubs, which is hardly an imposition since I didn't go into them anyway. Um, <laughs> certainly not when I was a chancellor. Um, but um, you know, the supermarkets have actually absorbed a lot of that because they discount it. And I, you know, I think well. Norman and I are old enough to remember uh, when you could buy a bottle of wine for a pound. Well, actually, that's pretty cheap um, and pretty rubbish wine. You can buy this similar sort of thing for five pounds now, and that's you know 50 years later. So it, the prices have been, you know, have been uh, absorbed by you know in the, in the, mostly the supermarkets and those things. It really depends on what people think is fair. And what, what view they have as to what the government happens to be doing at the time, why it happened and so on. I mean, you remember there used to be a lot of debate in the 80s about what was the correct uh, you know, amount of tax to take out of the economy, how much should debt be and so on. And looked at today, it all looks terribly academic. Can I just make one point? I mean, one of the things I think confuses the argument, which is put forward particularly by the conservative press, dare I say, I shouldn't be abusing such phrases, but is when they talk about the smaller state. Well, you, you can't express that just uh, by the, the uh, amount of tax that is raised. Um, you, you have to take borrowing into account as well. And a low tax rate and a high rate of borrowing is not a small state. It is a tax, it's a state living on borrowed time or a state living on fraudulent prospectus. Right, we've got a cluster uh, on uh, ones on um, on council tax and whether any of you uh, from Jill, whether any of you thought of uh, reforming it and a cluster that goes with that on uh, land value tax and whether any of you well, consider maybe that. I could maybe I could answer oh. that because I got the easiest and briefest answer because I introduced the council tax oh. so I wasn't thinking of reforming it um, but actually that was a massive uh, thing to have to do and that was why um, I put VAT uh, up in my in my very first budget in order to pay partly to alleviate the pain of uh, uh, the tax then as it was being introduced and to lessen the burden on local authorities and to alter the balance of expenditure between local authorities and central government. Maybe that was a bad mistake because uh, I remember Sam Britton concentrate, commented at the time, he said, why don't you just abolish local authorities instead? But uh, that was how the council tax came into being. I do have... Um the, the other two of you, because uh, the, the question in particular from Jill says, um, or are we stuck with 1990 values and a profoundly regressive yeah. structure forever? No, well, but, but, that, you know, that, that is the problem. I mean, the problem is from the very start, of course, the, the values were based on assessments or not on rateable uh, calculations, which is why the rating system had got uh, out of kilter. But of course, exactly the same thing has happened to the council tax system. Its valuations have not been updated and no government wants to do that because they know they'll just be faced with massive adjustments and particularly for a conservative government with property prices soaring in the south, the results would be disastrous. But that happened both under the rating system and it's happened under council tax. And at some point it's got to end. At some point this nettle has got to be grasped. I would say just on council tax, I mean, make three very brief points. So first of all, I did have a great reform, which my prime minister overruled me on, um, which was I was going to introduce two new higher bands of council tax, because you've got this strange situation where a 20 million pound mansion 
is paying the same council tax as a house that's uh, worth, say, a million and a half pounds, which is still an expensive house, but nothing like a 20 million pound house. Um, so I was going to introduce two new bands and use the money to get the income tax rate not from 50 to 45, but from 50 to 40 percent. And uh, and I even got the Liberal Democrats to agree to this plan. But uh, but but Prime Minister David Cameron took the view that uh, going to 40p was probably too much of a cut in income tax and that the council tax ban sounded a bit like a mansion tax. Uh, so on the many things we agreed on, that was one of the things we disagreed on. But I think that's a good reform still hanging out there for anyone who wants to pick it up. Um, I don't think you need to get rid of council tax, but I would. Um, and I think anyway, the revaluation problem is partly dealt with by any changes to houses lead to a revaluation. So as people over time do repairs to their houses and renovations, that, that kind of sucks that uh, houses in. But, but I would. Yeah, I think you could really decentralise the revenues. At the moment, local authorities don't really get the receipts. Mm. Whereas if you said to local authorities or indeed mayoral authorities, which I'm very keen on, if you create economic activity in your area, if you give planning permission to more homes, so there's a real incentive on a planning authority to do that rather than just face the opposition. <laughs> and you get the money from the extra council tax and you get the money from the extra business rates if you allow for economic development, and you devolve that to these powerful new elected mayors in the north of England and elsewhere, I think that would be a great decentralising reform that would also drive real economic activity and um, and levelling up, to use the current jargon. All right, let me, I want to get a few more in if that's, if that's all, all right. Um, uh, one from Catherine Viner of The Guardian, um, saying yesterday was International Women's Day. Why haven't there been any female chancellors yet? And what do you think needs to be done to increase female representation? Well, we've had a first lord of the treasury who was a woman, and she never forgot she was the first lord of the treasury. That too, actually. <laughs> well, we we have a female shadow chancellor, um, but it requires a change of government to make the next and vital step. Um, all right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, let's see. We we have. Um, there's a lot. Um, let me take one from Faisal Islam from the BBC. Um, and this is back on the question about um, not so much the decision to reverse the corporation tax cuts, but the abandonment by current number 11 of years of an argument that cutting the corporation tax actually raised revenue. I, I, I would say the one thing that is consistent about um, conservative governments, I'll, I'll let Alice speak for Labour governments, is that everyone assumes that we that the kind of driving ideology in the Conservative Party is low tax. Whereas I would suggest that if you look at Geoffrey Howe and Norman Lamont and myself and Rishi Sunak, fiscal responsibility has been a very important force in Conservative thinking. And you've got a current Chancellor Exchequer whose big budget judgment was, I am going to attempt to start to balance the books after spending a huge amount of money, quite rightly, in this crisis. And, and that strand of conservative thinking, which everyone thought had died in the last few years uh, after my time, is actually coming back. We've got a chance of doing it. How he goes about it is his choice. And, you know, it's the current, he has to do with the world as it is today, and he makes his own decisions. So I'm not going to criticise them, and I made different sets of choices. But Fundamentally, we're making the same judgment, which is you've got to repair the hole in the public finances. And I, I think that's an underestimated feature of this. And I also agree with uh, what was said earlier. We haven't even got on to the public expenditure side of it, but we're already constraining public sector pay rises, public sector pay budget, uh, public uh, service budgets in the future are going to be constrained because they have to be, because there's a great big hole in our public finances. And, and that's that that fiscal responsibility is coming back into vogue. Yeah, could I could I just comment on that? I mean, as it applies to the Conservative Party, and Alistair can comment on the Labour Party, but I think what George has said is quite right as it applies to government, and it's quite right as it applies to Thatcherism. I mean, Margaret Thatcher always used to say that sound finance came even before tax reform or reducing tax rates. She said that repeatedly. And while I think that has been true of conservative governments, I think there is a different strand of thought on the back benches. And there is an appetite there just always to reduce taxes. 
maybe it's very long-standing. I think it was Lord Palmerston said the House of Commons has an ignorant impatience with taxation, but you do get this pressure even when you're trying to behave responsibly from your own side. Look, I, I, I certainly, from my view, the corporation tax isn't a, an ideological matter. I think it has to be internationally competitive uh, because of its, uh, its general nature. And of course, the problem that we haven't touched on, and that is the ability of multinational corporations to move around the world and not pay tax anywhere. And that's something that's something that needs international cooperation and it needs fixing. Uh, but as I said earlier, what if a company is thinking about doing business in this country, it looks at the picture in the round. Is it, is it a good place to do business? You know, is it easy to trade here? Is it, does it, is it easy to trade with other countries if you are based here, for example? And so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think the corporation tax rate was heading to a level that was far too low. Uh, what I'm pretty sure about is that um, simply raising corporation tax, given that it doesn't actually bring in that much in the scheme of things, that isn't going to fix the problem. And, you know, councils will also tell you, you know, if you're serious about having decent infrastructure in this country, someone's got to spend some money on it and it's got to be raised from somewhere. And I think taking that broader look of things is absolutely essential. It remains to be seen what will happen. I mean, who knows? I notice that the present government has removed, removed the fixed term Parliament Act. We can't assume that the next election is going to be in four years time. They may have an election before then and say, well, let's look at everything again. We simply don't know. Uh, which is, you know, one advantage of announcing policies that may or may not take place in three or four years' time. I, I, by the way, I, I, I suspect the Chancellor, if he hadn't been constrained by the Tory manifesto, would have uh, preferred to increase VAT. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think, it, you know, you, you do have a problem there um, because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about people left behind um, or, or areas that need to be levelled up. Uh, you know, it, it, for people on low incomes, if you don't do other things, that can be uh, regressive. I know it's not charged on things like food and children's clothes and so on. Um, I, you know, if you look at the things that have been promised to that we're going to improve this country, they will involve some public expenditure. This whole idea, of, which is a good thing, of levelling up areas outside the big English metropolitan areas it will need spending on making sure people have got decent housing, not just uh, roads and rail, but uh, de decent schools and so on. It's a 30 year project. So don't think for one minute that this is a sort of blip and then you can get back to, you know, you know, pairing public spending back and trying to reduce taxes here, there and everywhere. If we want a decent country, we do need to make sure that it's properly looked after, properly funded. Uh, and that will get you the growth that ultimately determines really what your tax rates are. All right, let me squeeze in one and if possible, two two more. Um, there's one um, from um, Jitesh Gardia uh, asking what you thought um, the Office for Tax Simplification might manage to do, and in particular what you thought of its proposal to equalise capital gains tax and income tax. And there are a lot on what you think of capital gains tax. I mean, I well, can I can I just say whether that I mean, I, I was financial secretary when Nigel introduced the equalisation of uh, capital gains tax and uh, income tax. I have to say I was very much uh, opposed to that. It wasn't really as symmetrical as he made it out to be because, of course, there was indexation built into the system <laughs> anyway, which I think uh, was fair, but made it very, very complicated. But fundamentally, I think, although there is room for distortion, there is room for avoidance, I think a capital gain involves risk. It involves often entrepreneurs, involves businesses. I think is not the same as income, and I don't buy into the argument that they are the same. And so I'm afraid I've always been uh, opposed to the alignment. It was one of the things I wanted to do as Chancellor, but I was very conscious Nigel, to whom I owed such a huge amount and who I greatly admired, was sitting right behind me, and so I never did it. I mean, I should just say, first of all, um, Capital gains like corporation tax. It's just very hard to levy in a very in a world where capital is mobile. You know, if you put up if you have a capital gains tax of forty percent, you're just not going to raise the money. And I think the Treasury's internal estimate, certainly when I was there, was that around twenty eight percent was your revenue maximum re revenue maximizing rate of capital gains tax. You might want it lower, and I. I both increased capital gains tax in 2010 and then reduced it in 2015. If you want to try and give an entrepreneurial 
Push. I would say things like the Office of Tax Simplification, the OBR, publishing draft tax legislation in advance. These are the boring mechanics of transparency and predictability in the tax system, which chancellors can bring about and, and, and speak to a world where, yes, OK, you have annual budgets and, and you know, events happen. But nevertheless, certainly in the in the business world, people can plan against fairly predictable changes in, in tax going forward. I, I'd say, Brown, I think. The reform of capital gains tax is in the same bucket as the need to look at um, who's classified as employed and self-employed. The whole pattern of employment has changed over the last 10, 20 years. And what worries me is there's a lot of people who are maybe classified as self-employed, but not in the way that was intended when we first yeah. looked at these things years ago, and who basically are in a situation where they are not contributing to the system. They've got very little resilience, if any, to fall back on when things get difficult. And I think that whole question of how uh, we tax uh, that group of people um, and you know how we ensure that, that they have got resilience when it comes not just to their lifetime, but at the end of life, uh, their pension and so on, we need to look at that and the capital gains tax and the way in which that's levied, that needs to be part of that too. Thank you for that. And you've brought us to um, uh, where we're going to have to stop, but there was a whole cluster of questions that would have followed immediately from that. And I'm really sorry to everyone um, whose questions I haven't been able to get in. They're great questions. Uh, Vincent Masterson of uh, City um, uh, University of London, thank you for sending so many very good ones. They rather overlapped, sadly, with, with others, uh, but there were great ones on employment and self-employment and what to do about that, about taxing big tech, about hypothecation, and we could go on. Um, thank you all very, very much for answering those questions. And as I said, there, there's a flood of interest in this and we could have gone on for a long time. Everyone who's been watching, thank you very much indeed for that and for sending in these, these questions. And I wish I had been able to get more of them in. And with that, thank you from all of us at the IFG. And now I'm going to hand back to Matt Ellis of Deloitte just to say a few closing things. Thank you. Thank you, Bronwyn, and thank you, um, esteemed panel. I think as a spectator to that, that was just completely fascinating and a privilege to uh, hear uh, directly from people who have been in the room shaping so many of the budgets that we have advised on, listened to and operated under for so many years. We look forward to tax day uh, in a week or so's time uh, and to see what new policy we might see in that. Uh, and thank you once again, everyone, for joining. Enjoy the rest of your day.